more time. And I wanted to offer, I would love a chance to get to know any of you who are new and visiting. So I'm going to just be hanging out where these two girls are standing up. Hey, excuse me. <laughs> I can do that. That, that one, there's, her name's Stephanie. I can always give another Stephanie a hard time, right? Stephanie, Stephanie, Stephanie. Um, so I'll just be right over here. I'd love a chance to just meet you, say hi, get to know you. Uh, we want this to be a community that feels welcoming, and I know that it can take a lot of courage to come into a new community for the first time. And so I would love to have a chance to just have that conversation with you and, and hear a little bit about you. Um, so I've got a, a posing question for some of you, and you don't have to answer that because I don't want to out anybody about their age. But I imagine that some of you here, like me, remember what it was like to go on trips, road trips, before there was GPS. Anybody? Okay, let's just be honest. All right. Now, there was the beginnings of GPS happening when I was, you know, in high school, college. But you had to be kind of bougie if you had a GPS. It's not like your flip phone could tell you how to get somewhere. All right? So in 2005, I went on a road trip to Alexandria, Minnesota. Who's been to Alexandria, Minnesota? Beautiful area. And some of our friends were driving to Alexandria on 94, and we missed our exit on Highway 27 North because we were chatting. That's right. We were talking. We were having a good time. And because we were talking, we missed our exit. So we get to Fergus Falls, which is like 45 minutes after that, I think. And we're like, I wonder if we missed our exit. This is how, like, clueless we were about the geography at the time. And then we got to, to the area where we started to see signs that said, how long it was to get to Fargo. And we were like, wow, Fargo is closer to Alexandria than we thought. No, <laughs> we had driven past the exit to Alexandria that far and we had realized that we had missed our turn. Now, there were many signs along the way on 94, as you know, that warn you about the upcoming exits for Alexandria. But because we were distracted and we were having this conversation, we missed all the warning signs and then missed our exit. And I actually think about this story a lot because it reminds me of different situations in my life that I find myself in often where I am, metaphorically speaking, like not seeing the warning signs and I don't get off the road that I need to get off on when there's a time when I need to change my trajectory, but I am either totally distracted or, if I'm honest, sometimes actually trying to ignore the warning signs that I need to change my trajectory along the way. Warning signs that the, the trajectory in my life is not taking me where I want to go. And I get distracted or I ignore the signs. And this story where we almost drove to Fargo by accident, that's how I call it now, the story when I almost drove to Fargo by accident, all that happened in that story is that I lost like two hours of my life, okay, that I couldn't get back. But I was with my friends. We had to turn around. We drove back. But I have found that the missing, missing the warning signs in my actual life has been much more detrimental. And I often lose a lot more than just a couple of hours of my life. And we've been going through the different genres of the Bible together as a community. If you're newer with us, we've gone through the, the poems, we've gone through the wisdom literature, we've gone through the, the various aspects of the Old Testament stories and different things like that. And, and we want to understand how do we see our role in the story that God is telling if we understand God's big story that helps us see what our role might be in the story that God is telling and how God might want to interact with all of us. And so today we're going to start to look at the prophets. The prophets play this important role in the meta narrative or God's big story. And a part of the role that they play is warning God's people. 
Letting people know, hey, you need to change your trajectory. The road that you are on is not going where you want to go as people who are trying to follow God, as people who are trying to represent God in the world that God loves. So let's, as usual, let's show the, the brief Bible Project video that kind of summarizes how do we read the prophets because it's actually an unfamiliar genre to most of us. It's not like any other genre we have today. Since this was written to people thousands of years ago, let's learn just a little bit about how we can understand the context of the prophets' writings originally. So check this out. Ezekiel, Obadiah, Habakkuk. What do these names have in common? Well, they're three of the 15 prophets that have their own books in the Bible. And if you've tried to read these books, odds are you got lost in their dense poetry and strange imagery. But these books are super important for understanding the overall biblical story. So let's talk about how to read the prophets. When I hear the word prophet, I think of a fortune teller, someone who predicts the future. That's what being a prophet means in many cultures, but not in the Bible. While the biblical prophets sometimes speak about the future, they're way more than fortune tellers. How should I think about them? Well, they were Israelites who had a radical encounter with God's presence, and then were commissioned to go and speak on God's behalf. Like a representative. Right. And the thing that they cared about the most is the mutual partnership that existed between God and the Israelites. Right, the partnership. God rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt and invited them to become a nation of justice and generosity that would represent his character to the nations. And so this partnership required all Israelites to give their trust and allegiance to their God alone. In the Bible, this partnership's called the covenant. But the leaders, the priests, the kings led Israel astray and they broke the covenant. And so this is where the prophets came in, to remind Israel of their role in the partnership. And they did this in three ways. First, they were constantly accusing Israel for violating the terms of the covenant. The charges usually include idolatry, alliances with other nations and their gods, and allowing injustice towards the poor. Ah, so like covenant lawyers. Right. And so second, the prophets called the Israelites to repent, which means simply to turn around. They spoke of God's mercy to forgive them if they would just confess and change their ways. But Israel and its leaders didn't change. Things went from bad to worse. And so that brings us to the third way the prophets emphasized the covenant. They announced the consequences for breaking it, which they called the day of the Lord. Oh yeah, the apocalypse, visions of the end of the world. Well, sort of. The prophets were mostly interested in how God would bring his justice on Israel's corruption and on the violent nations around them. And while explaining these local events, they often used cosmic imagery. Cosmic imagery? Yeah, like Jeremiah. He described the exile of the Israelites to Babylon as the undoing of creation itself. The land dissolves into chaos and disorder, no light, no animals or people. Or Isaiah described the downfall of Babylon as the disintegration of the cosmos, stars falling from the sky, the sun going dark. For the prophets, when God acts in human history to bring justice, it's a day of the Lord. So the prophets aren't talking about the end of the world. Well, hold on. They're doing many things at once. The cosmic imagery shows how these important events of their day fit into the bigger story of God's mission to bring down every corrupt and violent nation once and for all. The prophets cared about the present and the future, and the cosmic imagery allowed them to talk about both at the same time. Got it. So no matter when you live, the day of the Lord's bad news if you're part of Babylon. But it's good news if you're waiting for God's kingdom. The day of the Lord pointed to the return of the exiles to Jerusalem. And once again, the prophets use cosmic poetry to describe it. They see a new Jerusalem, like a new garden of Eden, with all humanity living at peace with each other and with the animals. And there's a new messianic king who restores God's kingdom in a renewed creation. Beautiful. 
So those are the three themes in the prophets. These prophets must have been very powerful. All right, so here's my encouragement to you. Does that not help us realize how different that context was and what they were talking about? I encourage you, you can go to YouTube anytime. Just search the Bible Project and any book of the Bible, any concept, any genre, and some really helpful stuff comes up. I'm so grateful that they offer those resources for free. So these prophets, to the best of our understanding here now, they represented God, and they cared about the partnership that God had with God's people, which at the time was the Israelites. God rescued Israel, and Israel would be these people who would then be people of justice, be people of generosity, because they would be representing God's character to the nations. They continued over and over, as we know, if you've read through the story, not to represent God well, but to misrepresent God. And as people now who are trying to represent God as Jesus followers, we can understand how easy it is to misrepresent God and God's heart and God's character. And so the prophets are trying to offer these warning signs and saying, okay, hey, pay attention. Look at where this is going. This is not going where we want it to go. That's what these consequences, these repercussions are going to be. It's not going to be a good future if you don't change your trajectory. And when you read the prophets, some of you I know are reading along the Bible together. When you get to the prophets, you're going to notice some really strong language that comes from the prophets. And when you hear strong language, I hope you understand that that means that there's just a lot at stake. Oftentimes it's because there's a lot at stake. But here's, a, here's something I want to make really clear. Please don't make the mistake of misunderstanding that when God offers a warning sign to God's people, at its core, it's because of God's love. It's because of God's love that God wants us to not accidentally up, end up in Fargo if we didn't plan to go to Fargo. Okay? Now, no offense to Fargo. It's just an illustration. Someone's offended. If you're a Fargo person, is there Fargo people here? Okay, we're happy. I'm sorry. I'm not trying to say that Fargo is an example of the wrong place to go. But I wasn't trying to go to Fargo. When God is telling us to change our trajectory, it's out of love that God has for us. God warns us when we're, we need to change our trajectory when it's not where we're going, when it's not going to take us to where is God's best for us, where it's not going to lead us to being able to represent the love of God and, and represent to the world that God loves who God is and God's character. This is what Tim from the Bible Project says. He says the prophets are about how God will turn their story of failure, the Israelites' story of failure and exile, into a story of hope and restoration for all nations. He says that that twin message of prophetic warning and of hope is the message that the prophets care so much about. And Tim says this, and I agree. And it's a message that we still need to hear today. We need the warnings that we're not on the right track. But we also need the hope that God's mercy will lead us to where we need to be if we're willing to follow. So today we're going to look at the prophet Joel. It's a pretty short collection of these prophetic Hebrew poems. Uh, lots of times I think poetry, even today, is very prophetic. It really speaks into the moment. And so Joel is writing these poems, and he actually alludes to and quotes a lot of other prophets. And so if you are reading through the prophets, you might notice him echo Amos and Nahum and Zephaniah and Isaiah and Malachi. He's reflecting on all these other books as he's writing. And I, I want to read the introduction to Joel. But before I do that, what you need to know is that something terrible had happened to their community. Something that they had never seen before in their life. And this is what, how Joel opens up his letter to them. Joel 1, 1 through 5. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. 
Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. And what the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine. Wail because of the new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. He goes on to describe the situation that they're facing. So we're not sure exactly when Joel is writing. But what is pretty clear is that there has been a serious locust invasion. These bugs, this would actually happen often in the ancient Near East, but this has been, when Joel is writing, one of the most devastating, unlike they had ever seen for generations. So I want to warn you, I'm going to talk about the locusts a little bit. So if anybody's kind of like, about the bugs, I'm about to talk about the bugs, okay? You've been warned. I, I, I know some of you are really fascinated. Who's the people fascinated by bugs? Just be honest. All right, I know you. That's awesome. So this is for you. But I had a friend, that I was on a Zoom call with her, and a, a wasp flew in. I saw it in my screen. I saw a wasp fly behind her. I said, what's that? She got up. She was running around in her room on screen, whacking it with her shoe, okay? And we had just stopped the record button. I'm so bummed about that. So if you're one of those people who would, who would chase a wasp around your room, I'm warning you, we're going to talk about the locusts for just a little bit, and there's some pictures, so shut your eyes. All right, so these, these bugs, they're a form of a, a grasshopper, okay? And they can actually be pretty harmless when they're solitary, when they're on their own like any other grasshopper. But when they come together, they sometimes form swarms, okay? So Hojun Song is an etymologist at Texas A&M, and he said that locusts are often around. This is a current situation. But the locusts can go decades without swarming. Trouble starts when an environmental change improves the conditions for the insects and lets them breed rapidly, okay? So in the right conditions, or the wrong conditions, depending how you look at it, a single female locust laying her eggs in June could result in 18 million offspring in just four months. Woo, right? The locusts, they sense this change in their population. It's kind of crazy. And they, they, you know, they see that there's more, they smell, and then they bump into each other. And it changes their brain chemistry, you guys, their little brains, okay? And their appearance and their brain chemistry, and they start to move together in these large swarms and these large groups. Okay, so think about this for a second. They can go decades without swarming and just be normal grasshoppers. But does anybody remember the last time that there was a locust swarm that happened in the Middle East and Africa in, in our world today? Anyone remember? Oh, yes. Obviously, it was 2020. Right? Just on brand. So, yes, these cyclones and increased rainfall in recent years in East Africa led to more plant growth, which allowed the locusts to breed faster and leading to the locust swarms of 2020 on the bingo card of plagues of 2020. But they caused so much damage that in Ethiopia alone, one million people needed food emergency assistance just in that year. Isn't that crazy how much damage they can use? A locust will consume its own weight each day. And so we know that in this story in Joel, that this was really, really bad. This was a really bad version of this story, maybe even worse than the locusts of 2020. 
In verse 17, let me just read this short verse. It gives us a clue of how bad this was. It has laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches white. Okay, here's the, the, the trick. Uh, locusts don't eat vines and fig trees. Why would they eat the vines and fig trees? Because they have literally eaten everything else. And in this time, uh, vines and fig trees often represented security and prosperity and having enough of what you need. It says it has stripped off their bark and thrown it away. Sometimes so much bark would be taken off the side of a tree or of a vine that the vine or the tree would die. But if the tree made it through, it would be significantly less fruitful. So Joel has witnessed something terrible, and he starts out his writing by naming this plague and this destruction. And he does so because the type of disruption brought by this disaster can be a warning sign in the life of God's people. If they choose to see it that way. Joel doesn't seem to be saying that God caused the swarm, but he seems to be convinced that God wants to use it to get the attention of God's people. So let's, let's just pause here for a minute. Does this sound familiar to anyone else? Think about just a little bit what we've been going through. Joel is writing about a time when a plague took over the land that threatened peace and prosperity and security like no one had ever seen. And if the damage didn't completely take you out, the results were that you were going to be quite less fruitful. As I read this opening book of Joel that I just read to you a minute ago, I feel like we could have the locust plague in there still, apparently, of 2020. And then we could just add a few more plagues and just, this would be it. So I took the, the liberty, and I, you know what? I don't remember in seminary if they told me I was, it was okay to do this or not, but I've made the Pastor Steph translation, 2021, of Joel 1, 1 through 5, okay? I call it the PST, all right? Or if it's Adobe, then it's RST, Rev Steph, okay? So this is what I think Joel would say to us today. Listen up, people. Listen. Everyone in every country in the world, has anything like this ever happened in your whole life or in the lives of the generation before you? We will tell our children about this, and your children will tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the global pandemic took will show its effects for years. What the racial uprising unearthed shows how much pain and injustice that is still devastating so many lives. Wake up. This year may have caused you to avoid pain with TV or alcohol or whatever else could numb and distract you. But when you lose so much and see so much suffering, it is time to weep. It's okay to cry because so much has been lost. Joel is hoping and urging that this terrible time that they went through, this significant disruption, would be one that the people wouldn't miss the opportunity to see God get their attention. To see if there perhaps are some warning signs where God is saying to them, change your trajectory now. Let this, this experience, as hard as it's been, be something that gets your attention. And I think the truth that we see for us today is this. Disruption of any kind is an opportunity to stop and see if God is trying to get our attention. I know I felt like the disruption of the last 18 months or so offered some opportunities for me to stop and pay attention to things. There were things that God wanted to show me in my life. Did you notice anything like that? God getting our attention in our lives, I think sometimes the enemy wants that to lead to shame. 
But when God gives us warning signs, it's because of God's love, remember? So the, so the outcome that God wants for us is not shame, but our hearts being open to what God wants to do in our lives. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But as I listened to so many of you and so many other stories that I was so privileged to hear during this time, I thought I, hear, I heard so many people talking about the ways that God used this time to get their attention. So I'm going to share just a few of these things. See if any of these sound familiar to you. This is what I heard. God showed me how I have been feeling stuck in my career. God showed me how much of my kids' lives I had been missing. God showed me how much spending this much time with my kids led to deep impatience and exhaustion. I learned that I have some unhealthy patterns when it comes to coping with stress. Some pain from my past came up to the surface and my typical avoidance techniques didn't work as well. God showed me that I struggle with anxiety. God led me to realize just how little I prioritize my relationship with Jesus. God brought up some struggles in my most intimate relationships. I saw how apathetic I had become towards injustice. God brought to my attention how much I had not known, I had not realized about the pain of the oppressed in my life. Do you recognize any of those statements in your mind and heart? Was there anything that God might have been wanting to show you? Any warning signs in your life? Any trajectory shifts that God was inviting you into? Like Joel said, wake up! This last year felt like a wake-up call to some of us in different ways, didn't it? And often we're so tempted to try to distract ourselves. And that's what Joel saw from the people as well. So Joel's not just trying to say, hey, everybody, I just want to point this out. Joel actually is saying, hey, the difficult locust swarm was really tough. That was really terrible. And we're still dealing with the effects of what happened. But I want us to pay attention and take this opportunity. And then Joel invites God's people to respond. And I see multiple ways, but I just want to look at four ways that, that we're invited to respond the same way that Joel was inviting God's people to respond when you pay attention and you notice something that God's trying to get your attention. The first thing is to lament and to repent, to turn to God. Let me look at uh, Joel 1, 13 through 14. Put on sackcloth, you priests, and mourn. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come spend the night in sackcloth, you who minister before my God, for the grain offerings and drink offerings are withheld from the house of your, Lord, of your God. Declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. We did this this year. We came together, a holy assembly. What's holy assembly? Hey, that's what we're doing right now. We got together, we worshiped, we lamented, we cried with each other, we prayed for each other, and then repent. Repent literally means turn around. Turn around and get off of Highway 94 and turn around and get back, back on Highway 94 East and make your way back to the exit to Alexandria, okay, because you've gone too far. That's what it means. You're heading in the wrong direction. Turn around. You aren't going in the direction that you truly want to be going in. And repentance always turns in the same direction, and that is towards God's heart for you and God's heart for the world that God loves. In chapter 2, 12 and 13, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Rend your heart, not your garments. Okay, this is maybe a weird thing to think about, but at that time when people felt really, really sorry for something that they had done, 
or they were feeling really sad and they were lamenting, they would rip their clothes, okay? Um, I, I don't think that's a practice for most of us in our cultures today. But what God was saying to them is, this is not what I want. I don't just want these outside signs that you're repenting so that you can get out of trouble. You're not in trouble. I love you. I want your heart. I want you to, to rend your heart. I want gener- genuine change from the inside out. That people would stop their selfishness and stop this reality of representing God so poorly in the world that God loves and that be, being people who love God and love their neighbor above all else. So most of us are not going to rip our clothing, I don't think. But are there other ways in which we do these performative things on the outside so that we can just kind of get by whether or not change is happening to us on the inside, if we're honest? Things that are just external and not actually internal. So for instance, I've definitely heard people talking about how it's easy for people to t- be tempted to be a performative ally to people who are oppressed. We're not actually changing our lives in any way that's going to shift the injustice in the world. We're just posting something online and feeling good about that. We're just making sure we d- say the right thing in our workplace and not the wrong thing. And nothing is wrong with that at its core, but, but what's really going on on the inside? This is what God cares about. What other ways might we be doing that in our world today? Where we might be doing something on the outside, but we really haven't changed anything on the inside. I often say there's only one thing that God wants for us, wants from us, and that's our hearts. What God wants from us is our hearts. When we rend our heart, this idea of rending your heart, it's tearing your heart open and letting God in because that's where the real change starts. So I think a question for all of us is this. Have you given God complete access to your heart? I know it takes courage to do that, but if you do that, you'll see that God does not want to approach you then with shame. That's not what God wants. God wants to bring love and compassion. That's what truly brings change. Has anyone actually seen shame bring change in their own life or someone else's life? No. Not permanent change. Not real change. Love is what changes things. And that's the second point. Accept God's love and compassion. You see so clearly here that Joel is saying we've got to accept God's love and compassion. When you turn around and you repent, you turn towards God, you're facing God, ready to receive God's love, ready to receive God's compassion. We just read that part. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Here he's actually quoting Exodus. When you receive God's love, You realize how loved you are. You realize how forgiven you are. And it's only from that place that you can have compassion on yourself. I thought about this for a while. I want to ask a question this morning. And I want you to be honest if you want to. But don't feel pressure if you don't feel ready to say yes. But here's a question that I have that I want to answer honestly with you. Would you say that you noticed in this last year that you struggled to have compassion for yourself? Because I did. Would anybody be willing to admit that? That you struggle to have compassion for yourself? Do you believe that God loves you enough for that compassion? If the God of the universe has compassion on us, when we are off track, when we're heading the place we're not supposed to go, if the God of the universe has compassion on us, maybe we could ask God to help us have some compassion for ourselves as well. Unless we think that we know better than God about that compassion. And I think that leads us to the third thing, which is just receiving empowerment from the Holy Spirit. Read one more verse to you. And I really do encourage you to go back and read. It's not a very long book in general. 
chapter 2, 28 and 29. And afterward, this is God speaking, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Joel talked about this day when God's spirit would be poured out. And whenever you hear the language of God's spirit being poured out, I want your brain to go to empowerment. That the spirit of God wants to empower us. And we know that God's spirit will bring empowerment. When Jesus left this earth, he left the disciples and he said, I'm going to send the spirit as a counselor and a guide. And if we want our hearts and our lives to change trajectory towards what God wants for us, we're going to need empowerment from the Holy Spirit. An openness in our hearts to what the Holy Spirit can do in our lives. I love reading that passage. That the spirit will empower us, young men, old men, both men and women, everyone, just all of us being empowered to step confidently into what God's calling us into. This is my hope and my prayer for our church and for our community. This is a prayer that you can pray, and in a minute we're going to sing a a version of it. We can pray this prayer and, and mean it. Spirit of the living God, fall on me. Empower me. Wake me up from my sleep. Show me what you have for me and lead me to follow. And then fourth and finally, I think we see Joel saying this is an invitation to us, and that is to trust God with the future and hold on to hope. Trust God with the future and hold on to hope. In chapter 2, 25, Joel says, God will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. In chapter 3, he finishes the poem with this beautiful picture of this new city that will come and how God is going to confront evil, just like we saw in the video. And, and, And it's not about any one city now. It's about how this new heaven and this new earth is going to come. And God is going to restore what the locusts have eaten. But here's how God restores things to us. God restores us through God's presence. God's presence is what restores us. Listen, I'll be honest with you. I have a list of things that I'd like to have repayment. Hey, I had some things taken from me this last year, God. Here's my list of repayment. Thanks. If you could just, if these things could just happen. But what our hearts truly need is God's love to come into this world fully and to restore and heal everything, including us. So there is hope right now. There is hope right now. God is with us right now. And we see this future hope when God's presence will be here fully. But the difference that Jesus makes is that Jesus came to earth to prove how much the manifestation of God's presence changes everything. And then he left physically, but left the spirit here to empower us and to guide us. And here's the thing. I, I do believe this. I believe that God is going to repay some of what the plague has taken. And I think in the near future. I think if we pay attention, God will show us. If we change trajectory and follow after God's heart for us, there's things that God will do in the near future to say, I want to repay what you've been taken from you in this time. But what we know for sure is this future hope when not only will God restore all things and repay everything, but, but every single thing, there will be no more debts. Every single thing will be paid. Every single thing will be restored. And we can hold on to that hope. And so now here we are as followers of Jesus. You know, these words were written a long time ago by Joel, but, but we're trying to do the same thing, aren't we? We're trying to represent God's heart to a world that God loves. And we need to follow these same steps that Joel encouraged people to follow. So take some time this week, would you, to just reflect on what what warning signs God might have offered you because of God's love for you? What has God tried to get your attention around in this last year? Notice if there's some shame 
be curious about that and say, okay, wait, God, is this, what, what's this? I know it's not from you. Maybe you have to say that out loud. And then ask Jesus to guide you in the process we just talked about. Lamenting, repenting, turning towards God and saying, God, I'm turning towards you. I want to accept your love, your compassion. And Holy Spirit, I'm going to have to receive your empowerment to be able to take steps forward, even though I'm tired, even though I'm feeling some disorientation around this last year. And God, give me courage to trust you with the future and to be able to hold on to hope no matter what. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I thank you for these words thousands of years ago that you spoke through this man who was trying to be faithful to you, who had experienced something terrible but saw what you were doing in the midst of it. Help us to open up our eyes to see what you might be doing and attune our ears to your voice and turn towards you and have the courage to respond. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.